Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we are starting on a new saga today, John. And he's off. Jumping right out of the gate on this one, huh? Well, it's been a while since we've cracked open a fresh new saga. I like that smell of a new saga. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of excited. Mm-hmm. This this is a good, good one, you. too. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, so let's dig right in. Uh, what do we got? Well, this is Hávarðar saga Isfjörðings, or the saga of Hávarðar of Isafjörð. Uh, it's one of the very last sagas to be written, as far as we understand, uh, at least mm-hmm. among the surviving sagas. And it's set in the northwest corner of the island in the years immediately after the conversion of Iceland. Right, so the early 11th century. Right, yeah, starting around uh, 1000 AD or uh, BCE, whatever whatever you right. want. Insert your chronographical acronym of choice. <laughs> chronographical, yes. Well, for most, pre- uh, for most people, this isn't a well-known saga. In fact... Mm-hmm. If you're not from Iceland and not big into the sagas, the most likely reason Isafjord might uh, be familiar to you is that it's the site of the Folsavatn's Gangan, an annual skiing marathon. Wow. So if, <laughs> if you dropped your ski wax in excitement when you saw the title of this saga, we're very sorry. Uh, yes. There's very little in the way of winter sports in this saga. No, but there's a bit of ice dancing. That's, that's about nope, it, though. Nope, no ice dancing. Well, anyway, uh, this saga tells the story of Hávarðr of Isafjord, uh, but Hávarðr, he's not a typical saga protagonist, at least not the yeah, kind no, we've usually seen. No, he's old, for one thing. Uh, the saga yeah. begins with Hávarðr having retired from a successful career as a Viking for many years. He's uh, settled in well, he's got a comfortable farm, a few old war injuries, and a wife and son. Yeah, and, uh, and this story begins with some trouble brewing. Whoa, 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 whoa. You, you really are eager to get started on this, aren't you? Uh, well, I know how long it takes us. I kind of wanted to make sure. Yeah, we yeah, no, you're trying to fast forward. I was hoping to introduce a so- the saga just a bit more before we dive in. Okay, yeah, be be my guest, Ravenkels and whatnot. Go ahead. Yeah, well, let's, let's start with the reputation of our story. Uh, as you said, it's one of the later sagas with all that that implies in terms of continental influence on the writing and the romanticism that comes with nearly possibly 400 years separating the saga's supposed events from its written form. Yeah, that's a lot of generations of storytelling and playing telephone with the narrative, but and yeah, I think yeah. this one can date back pretty far. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is one of those, part. in terms of the written form, this is one of the later sagas, right? It's had its narrative gaps filled in and filled out to fit a later medieval sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it helps, think of these late sagas like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Right? When you, you have see what happens, you've got to be kidding me, John. I don't have to be. Uh, remember the explanation for how the gaps in the dino genetic record were patched up? The, well, the DNA from frogs. Yeah, yeah. So if the later Icelandic sagas are Pentaceratops, then continental literature and the romances are brightly colored frogs whose DNA is used to complete and refine the genome of the sagas. That's, well, that's surprisingly accurate as a metaphor. Surprisingly? Come on. Uh, well, John, you spent so much time asking whether you could make the analogy that <laughs> you never stopped to ask if you should. Oh, oh, I should. Uh-huh. Uh, the point here is that we're working from late sources. It doesn't mean our subject matter is from a late saga, but the sources that survive are quite late. We have no written versions of this saga surviving from the medieval period. The, yeah. the earliest version we have is a printing from the 17th century, although it's been argued on pretty good evidence that the printing is actually copied from a lost 14th century original. 
And yeah, it, it gets a little more complicated because there may have been a second version of the saga called mm-hmm. the saga of Thorbjorn and Halvor the Lame. But that version's been lost too. Right, and then there's another possible tradition of an Isfjavinga saga mentioned in the Book of Settlements. Yes. But that one is also missing. I mean, at some point, it looks like carelessness. Uh, All right, so let's talk about the critics for a minute. A minute, but that's about all I'll take. Yeah, well, that's about all it will take. Uh, (laughs) Bernadine McCreesh's entry on the saga for the medieval Scandinavia encyclopedia pretty well sums it up. Mm Mm-hmm. The lateness and unreliability of Halvor the Saga may explain why critics have paid little attention to it. That's it? That's all she's got? No, no, that's just the takeaway at the end. Uh, She also says, some of the characters are a little unconvincing. (laughs) Well, I mean, she's not wrong, but it's hyperbole for a purpose. Yeah, hang on. Uh, The version of the saga that has come down to us contains certain inaccuracies. Inaccuracies? Some scenes serve as unnecessary adornment. And the author has sacrificed realism for humor. Well, uh, not just humor, but uh, I have to say that's not a resounding endorsement of what I'm finding to be a very enjoyable saga. Uh, No, she has observations about the verses as well, but we'll save those for later. Okay. Well, I looked up a couple of our usual suspects, like uh, our pal Jonas Christiansen, who Mm -hmm. includes two paragraphs about Halvard's saga in the entirety of his Eddas and Sagas book that we often refer to when introducing Mm -hmm. sagas. He explains the saga's links to the Book of Settlements, but he says, The author of the saga was working from memory as well as altering as he saw fit. He had no compunctions about adding fictions of his own either, for the saga is full of typical 14th century fantasy. Hardly complimentary. He's not done. Mm. In this saga, there are only two sorts of people. Halvarder and everyone on his side are good, and then Thorbjorn Thjothriksen... And all his lot are bad. Right. So maybe not a fan, really. Am I reading that correctly? Well, Christensen's often a little dismissive of the later sagas. And Mm -hmm. as you just said, this is a fairly late, about as late as the sagas get. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's a bit of a theme of scholars not taking this one super seriously. Uh, When Sigurd the Nordahl was putting together his timeline of saga production, he specifically cites Halvard Saga as evidence of the decline, quote, of saga writing from the heights of as he says the realism and objectivity found in Raffenket's saga and Njal's saga wow of course the other saga he lists as part of the decline is Gretia's saga so I'm Hmm. not sure how we should weigh all of this and I'm also curious how realistic and objective are Raffenket's and (laughs) Njal's saga well, and while we're at it, Gretter's saga is pretty good company to be placed in, so I'm not sure this is such a slam on it. Yeah. Oh, and uh, the third scholar that I checked was uh, Stefan Anderson. Uh-huh. And? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> it just <laughs> doesn't really bother to acknowledge it at all, but I did check. Oof. That's rough. Uh, yeah, no, to be clear, this is a fun little saga. I mean, you know, we were just talking beforehand about how much fun we're having reading this. Yeah. And not everyone hates it. <laughs> No, but you know, and and not everyone includes our listeners. A lot of people have yes. been, a lot of people have been reading it and then commenting about how much they're enjoying yes. it uh, on our various uh, points of access. But yeah, you know, the the usual scholarly suspects they they aren't impressed with Halvard's saga, right? But but if we're looking for Halvard's criticism in bulk, we need to talk about E. Paul Durenberger and Dorothy Durenberger. Oh, the Durenbergers. Uh, 
The Dernbergers. Uh, they produced a translation of the saga in 1996 for Hisselic Press. Did they? And their introduction is pretty extensive. Where is this? Where is this translation? Uh, well, I mean, it's right here. I can <laughs> show it to me. I can hold quick. it up you for you, there. but this is not a visual medium, so. Yeah, yeah, but I can see it. Okay, it's one of those. Yes. Yeah. All right. I have to get a get a copy of that. Well, mm-hmm. how how extensive is their intro? Well, the saga in their edition is fifty six pages long, and the intro is forty one pages. Oh God, they're as bad as us. Not as bad. Yeah, but they're close. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot to work with there. Uh, and if anyone is interested in really getting stuck into this saga, their edition offers the best support apparatus for reading. Interesting. Uh, they actually see a lot to value in this saga, uh, particularly in its depiction of what they call a political economy in action. Mm. Uh, and the inequalities that were imported with the Gothorth system from Norway and then reinforced by the elite class of Iceland. See, now suddenly this sounds like a much better saga. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, there's a lot like that in the intro, and I'm sure we'll be dipping into their essay here and there as we read the saga. John, what are the chances that uh, you can photocopy that intro and send it my way? I mean, you know, uh, if it weren't for the fact that you just announced you're asking me to commit copyright infringement on the podcast. It's not. It's, uh, not. it's only 42 pages, and I'm asking you to scan it's, it. But it's, but it's more than 40% of the book, <laughs> because the actual book is only 100 pages long. I mean, that's problematic. <laughs> Uh, cut, we'll cut tell you what, I will, we'll, cut that, we'll, we'll, we'll send it. Uh, brew up a couple of teas one night and I'll read it to you. Uh, how's that? Oh, that sounds lovely. And or unofficially send you a copy. So that's, <laughs> that's fine too. Either way, either way. Um, all right. So I think, uh, yeah, I think, uh, that's more than enough mm-hmm. and we can, uh, dive in, dig in. Well, we'll do one last item. Hack uh, our did, way in. As you mentioned earlier, we need our problem kills measurement. Ah, uh, yes. Well, yes, we can't move forward without the problem kill. Go ahead. Uh, so it's been a while, but for each saga, we provide a measurement of saga length by comparing the word count to the first saga we covered for the podcast, Proven Saga. All right. And I am going to guess that this saga comes in at, it's more than a Proven Kettle. But it's not a ton more. I'm going to go mm-hmm. 1.8 Ravenkets. That's very good. Uh, That's off the top is, of the dome, John. What is it? There you go. This saga is 15,841 words, which means it weighs in at a trim fighting weight of 1.74 Ravenkets. I was like... You were very close. I was right there. Yep. If I was a student, I would be emailing you and asking if you could just bump my grade up by giving me that, that, that <laughs> No, I think that's point. an A. That's close enough for an A. Yeah. <laughs> I got a 1.74. Could you just make that an A? Well, I mean, technically that does round down to 1.7. So I only missed 10 classes, John, but I had good reasons. <laughs> uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting chills now. Uh. <laughs> Oh man! All right, let's let's do something more positive. Let's read this saga or summarize uh-huh. the saga. <laughs> Part one: Olaf Halvorsen's annual running of the sheep. So, how do we feel about a whole lot of people being introduced all at once? Well, I mean, does it matter how we feel about well, it? Well, I mean, it'll affect how much we enjoy the next five minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Did you, uh, did you count how many people are actually introduced? I did. Yeah. 15. Uh, we've had worse. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, John, I got to tell you when I read the first chapter of the saga, I was like, oh, I better keep a, I, I, I genealogy wasn't going to work with this yeah, saga. No. 
So I was like, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a cast of sure. characters. And so I've got a running cast of characters as each people's introduced. And there's, yeah, the first chapter is a... It's a it's humdinger. A uh, no, I actually made the mistake of trying it to is. do genealogy. And you're right. It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to do it that way. There's just too many different households involved. Yeah, exactly. The, the thing is that usually in a saga, as it introduces mm-hmm. a variety of characters all at once, we can skip over most of the crowd at the outset and just deal with them when they come up later. But in this saga, it's kind of warranted. I don't think we can skip No, anybody. I know. I agree, actually. Uh, everyone's important to the story. Uh, but we can yeah. at least organize everyone into the households, right? There are yes, there are five helpful. households, but three of them are all siblings, so we can lump them all together. Okay, well, uh, let's get lumping. Lump one is the house of our protagonist family. Uh, however, the Isafjord is a retired Viking, as we said. Uh, he's got a pretty significant limp due to an old battle wound in his leg. And in this saga, uh, however, this uh, leg wound and limp are just mentioned but we know from the source materials that he has this nickname, Inhalti, uh, the lame or limper. That's a pretty straightforward yes, nickname. Dressy. Uh, however, mm-hmm. is a successful man with a comfortable income. He's married to Bjargi, who's described as a woman of firm character and a good family. Uh, they have right. one son, who's a teenager named Olav, who's big and strong for his age, because who in the sagas isn't? We're told that both parents love Olaf deeply and that he's a good and obedient son. First of all, it's a rare happy family scene mm-hmm. in the sagas. It's usually more neutral, just an explanation of the family members of the saga. But yeah. I have a feeling mentioning that at this moment <laughs> is kind of a warning. Right. <laughs> Tragedy on the horizon. Uh, yeah, But this is an early yeah. example of that, that writtenness of the saga that we talked about earlier, right? The way, right, the way it yeah. incorporates and imitates more continental conventions like overt sentimentality. Uh, and sure. this is the start of the saga, so we know this isn't going to last, right? This is just the mm-hmm. the ground state for understanding who Halvorth is. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'll explain the antagonists of mm-hmm. this story. Lump two as it Lump were, yeah. two. <laughs> we can really think of the saga as having good guys and bad guys, as uh, Christensen mm-hmm. said. Um, and, and I'd say most sagas avoid that. Most sagas are interested right. in the kind of moral complexity. We just saw that with Laxdala saga where it's, while there are some bad guys, it's kind of, we at least understand their motivation. Right. This will be a refreshing right? departure but, uh, from depth. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to dive right into the shallows. <laughs> so the, the head of the antagonist family is Thorbjorn Thjodriksen. Uh, he's a local chieftain and a strong arm type with a reputation for unjust behavior. Uh, he's a typical kind of saga villain. He, he steals land, he bullies people, all that kind of stuff. But his worst offense, and it's pretty offensive, <laughs> is that he likes to take the daughters of nearby farmers from their parents, and he keeps them at his farm. Yeah, it's not good. No. The saga's a little squeamish about it, and only talks about it euphemistically. So it's not entirely clear whether he's just putting them to work in his household uh, or whether the women are being forced into concubinage of a sort. Right. So he's a monster. He's a villain out of a fairy right. tale. Like Bluebeard, yes. but with less murder. No, he, he also kills people, <laughs> just not usually the women he's True, abducting. True, fair. I, I rescind that. Go on. Yeah. So Thorbjorn's power is partly based on his family connections. He is the head of a large clan and it's... And at its center are Thorbjorn and his five siblings. He has a sister named Thordis, 
whose two sons, Vok and Scarf, are both going to figure into this story soon. And he has four brothers. Two of them are both named Lyot, uh, which is, granted, a little confusing. This is my brother Lyot. This is my other brother Lyot. Dude, that is such a dated reference. <laughs> that's, that's a joke that my parents used to make is it really? when I was a kid. Is and, it even too old for you? Yeah, and Oh, dear. It's too old wow. for me because as a kid, I wasn't sure what they were uh, talking about. It's not, it's not old. It's vintage, Andy. It's a vintage reference. Uh, so when the time I comes, see. we can call them uh, Yot of Manaberg and Yot the Dueler because that's how they're referred to in the saga. Okay, so uh, Thordis and uh, Yot of Yots. Uh, <laughs> and then Thorbjorn also has a brother named Thorarin uh, and finally another brother named Sturla. Uh, or Sturtla. And Sturtla's son, Thjodrik, is also in this story. And there's an assortment of employers, employees and hangers-on that we'll, we'll deal with as they come up. There's yeah, a it's a big crew. Uh, and most of the men are known to be great fighters and clever men, just, you know, mostly jerks. Yeah, yeah, pretty much exactly the kind of gang that an old Viking with a leg injury should be trying not to antagonize. You are a master of subtle foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just a quick note, yeah. John. Uh, one of our listeners recently contacted me from mm-hmm. Iceland. So a real Icelander. Hey. Um, it's uh, Stefan Bjornsson. Hi, Stefan. He wrote uh, just a, a great email uh, full of all kinds of great info. We'll, we'll touch on uh, some of it next mm-hmm. time. But uh, one of the things that he did was he he looked into uh, Thorbjorn's family mm-hmm. tree. Um, and he, he wrote the following. No shit that Thorbjorn was powerful. Sorry for the, the, the blue language. <laughs> His family line through his mother's side up to Hrolf Herzer is impressive. Mm-hmm. And his family is mentioned in La Nama Book, in Erpigi Saga, in Goldthorir Saga, and in Sturtlunga Saga. Um, there, there is some slight variation in the genealogies across all of those things. Uh, but the, what, what is consistently clear is that this is a very, very powerful family. Right. And messing with Thorbjorn would be a huge mistake for anyone. Right, exactly. And, of course, everybody in the region knows it, which is why Thorbjorn's able to get away with being what he is, right? Being just kind of a, 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 I think a so. small-time bully. Uh, no, there, right, from a big right, family. And there is one more household we need to know about. Uh, it's just uh, one that we'll introduce in a little bit. For now... For those of you who are driving a car or jogging and not taking notes, the upshot is that Halvorth has a wife and son, and they're surrounded by a large family of powerful enemies. And, it, it, you know, it, we can simplify it. The TLDR is uh, we've got a guy named Halvorth. He's got a son named Olaf and a wife named Bjargi. They're the good guys. And then you've got this other crew led by Thorbjorn, the chieftain, who likes to abduct women. And he's got this punk that lives with him called Vok. And that's that's more or less what you need to know for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at the point when we begin this saga, Thorbjorn the chieftain has abducted a woman named Sigrith from a prominent local family. And she's living with him at that point when our story begins. And there's a popular but apolitical man named Thoralf in this region. Uh, and he happens to be a kinsman of Sigrith's. And Thoralf continues to offer to take her in. But Thorbjorn just gets mad at him every time he mentions it and says, never talk about this mm-hmm. again. So uh, let's get to know Halvorth's family a little bit. We've already mentioned Bjargi, uh, Halvorth's strong-willed yeah. wife, and Olaf, their strapping son. Uh, Olaf gains a reputation early on for his size and also having for what the saga calls bear warmth. Love this uh-huh, detail. Because he's impervious to the cold. Whether in the mm-hmm. grimmest frost or the worst cold of winter, Olaf can be found wearing only his shirt tucked into his trousers. And... Presumably shoes, although the story doesn't explicitly say so. I mean, why assume that? Do bears need to wear shoes, John? 
No, they always have bare feet. I hate that. <laughs> uh, Olaf also spends a fair amount of time with another teenager, uh, Thoral, uh, <laughs> who lives on their farm. Uh, Thoral's a cousin of Olaf's and helps take care of provisioning for the people and animals on the farm. Uh, Thoral's claim to fame is that he's a very fast runner. Yes, he should enter the uh, seal ball run <laughs> if he if he has the time. Absolutely. If he can get away. <laughs> but, it, I mean, this is another trope, right? Olaf's immune to cold. Thorhot's uh, fleet-footed. Feels like the setup to a fairy tale about adventuring boys who end up marrying a princess. Well, saving I mean, or being killed by a monster. Eh, or that could happen. But definitely, yeah. No, the shades of folklore all through this story. Uh Anyway, one autumn, the local farmers are rounding up their livestock, as they do, and a large number of sheep are missing. Uh, Thorbjorn Gothi alone is missing 60 sheep, and others are missing some as well. When they haven't been found after the winter night's feasts, Olaf takes it upon himself. He goes hiking up and down the nearby mountain and valleys on a sheep hunt. Presumably in his shirt sleeves. Oh, absolutely in his shirt sleeves. Yeah, with the top couple of buttons undone Fabio style to show off his chest muscles. I feel like we read slightly different sagas. <laughs> uh, but oh, yes, he's a beefcake. Uh, so Olaf uh, eventually does find most of the sheep and drives them to the farm to drop off each one with its owner. He's a beefcake who's also a regular boy. Scout. He's a good boy. Ladies, gentlemen. He's a very good boy. Hmm. Uh, yes, and he the, is. The last farm he visits is Thorbjorn's. And when he arrives in the yard, uh, Sigrid, the semi-captive housekeeper, comes out to greet him. Yeah. Meanwhile, inside the house, Thorbjorn hears the commotion and he sends his nephew Vok to go to the door and see what's going on. Vok arrives to hear Sigrid ask the news and for Olaf to explain that he's simply dropping off Thorbjorn's missing sheep. And now I, I don't need to go any farther. <laughs> Tell someone about the sheep, would you, Sigrid? Uh, Vok's re- reaction to this is, uh, it's a little curious. Uh, the saga says, yeah. Vok ran shrieking into the main room of the farm. <laughs> yes. And oh my and God. says to Thorbjorn, That, that Olaf, the, the fool from Blaumery, uh, however the sun has arrived, he, he has driven home the weathers you were short of last autumn. Oh, good. That was well done of him. Why the heck are you screaming about that, Well, well, that's not all. I think the real reason for his visit was something else, because I saw how he and Sigrid chatted with each other for the whole evening. I saw how delighted she was to wind her arms around his neck. (laughs) Well, I mean... I, when he said that, I had to go back and yeah. read the, the section, <laughs> the very, very short section yeah, <laughs> where where Olaf arrives. It's not true. Nothing no, like I that I mean, it's happened. not explicit in the narrative, but it's conceivable. It's also conceivable that Vok is full of horse pucky. Yeah, and I think that's very possible. Or sheep, sheep pucky. But he's full of narratively significant horse pucky. Actually, yes. yes uh, what we is. have in Vok is a highly compressed example of the Nithingsverker, a, a contemptible mm. man, right? a man whose actions cause yes. tragedy in the lives of better men. Oh, yes. We've seen this type before. Mm. Narfi comes to Narfi. mind from Cormac Saga. Hate that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one of the things we're going to have to adjust to in this saga is the lack of subtlety in its use of motifs. There's, there's no real attempt to build Vok up as a grounded figure with a complex worldview. 
He exists almost purely as a narrative contrivance, a, a shortcut to creating discord between Olaf and Thorbjorn. Sure. He's, but we, I mean, we were fine with that with uh, with like a Thor Hotla chatterbox sure, yeah, in absolutely. the previous saga. But she's a much more minor I mean, they, character. They like, Vok is going to stick around and is going to continue to be this guy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he's Thorbjorn's last. Someone's got to right? drive the narrative yeah, forward. He just kind of, he's there to yip at anybody he thinks his uncle shouldn't like. Vox sees a chance to cause trouble and starts shouting his head off because that's who he is. Yeah, well, this saga is painting in broad strokes, so it's not so surprising that Thorbjorn goes along with this. He says, Olaf may be a courageous man, but it's still foolhardy of him to pay us such an insulting visit. Right, so there's no question in Thorbjorn's mind but that Vak is telling the truth. Well, no. Right, and I think of this uh, as a convenient indulgence, right? Thorbjorn's always on the lookout to assert his dominion over his region, his household, anywhere else he wants to extend it. Olaf is a local up-and-comer with a good reputation, and Vok has just handed Thorbjorn a chance to undermine Olaf's good deed and make him look like a local Lothario instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, there is another reason that Vok might report Sigrid and Olaf's meeting as romantic. Well. Because <laughs> there might be some genuine interest there, after all. Mm-hmm. According to the saga... After this visit, he starts coming around to Lagerball regularly after this encounter and, and makes a point of visiting Sigrid. So it's not long before rumors start circulating that uh, that he's been seducing her. Uh, okay, uh, that's a rumor. Now, Olaf may be interested in Sigrid, but our authority for there being anything untoward about their relationship is just rumor. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen how eager Vok is to play fast and loose with the facts to spread those yeah, rumors. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Uh, you know, I, I was yeah. looking at this part and thinking like, okay, he either either we're skipping some time in that opening sequence there with, with Sigrid and, and Olaf. Mm-hmm. And he's painting a picture that we didn't get to see. Or he's an outright liar, which I tend to believe. Which then right. leads me to believe that this rumor, like a lot of the rumors we've seen from similar characters in the sagas, it's based on next to nothing. And right. perhaps and this guy, perhaps Olaf walks by sometimes, but all you need is yeah. someone to have seen him, and then you can let right. the rumor kind of build. Right. There's just enough of a grain of truth in there, right? But if yeah, there are so. rumors afloat in the neighborhood, we can make a pretty shrewd guess as to who's been floating them. Right. Yeah. So Olaf has continued visiting the farm and making woo at secret, and Thorbjorn's still annoyed about it. So mm-hmm. that fall, Olaf once again takes on the job of rounding up stray sheep and bringing them around to the farms. And everyone else is grateful and talking up what a good lad Olaf is. But when he arrives at Laugabal with Thorbjorn's sheep, he enters the house to see Thorbjorn and Vok and their men glaring at him. No one offering a word of welcome. Mm-hmm. After a long, long pause, Olaf carefully leans on the shaft of his axe and speaks a verse. I resolve to requests of the reticent men. Why do all stay silent, the steadfast companions? No one tenders a toast to timid, voiceless men. Here have I long stood still, and sounds I hear from no one. And then he adds, My business in coming here, Thorbjorn, is to drive your sheep to their fold. Well, yeah, Vox, Vox the one to break the silence. Uh, oh, 
It's, it's known to everyone by now, Olaf, that you've become quite a model sheepdra over here in Isfjord. We also know that your reasons for coming here to claim a share of the sheep. It's a beggar's share, and it's fitting to remember it, although it is just a pittance. Vox sucks, John. He does. He really, really does. He, he's like if Salacious Crumb could talk. Uh, Salacious Crumb, interesting analogy there. Um, mm -hmm. Just to be clear, for those who aren't from our generation or John's head, Salacious Crumb is the annoying little monkey monster from Return of the Jedi. Uh, yeah, the monkey lizard. Uh, he's a Kowakian monkey lizard. No one cares. I care, damn it. The <laughs> so calling someone a beggar and a sneak, those are usually the kind of words that would get a man killed, especially when mm -hmm. the one talking is a sniveling little weasel or a uh, uh, a monkey lizard like Vok. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, a Kowakian monkey lizard. Thank you. Uh, and I, I should point out, uh, like I said, Olaf has his axe out and he's leaning on it. Yeah, but the monkey lizard has chosen his moment well. Uh, Olaf's alone and surrounded in Thorbjorn's house. Yeah. There's no violent response to this that doesn't end with Olaf getting killed as well. Yeah. And Olaf's a smart guy. He replies, mm -hmm. that wasn't my business. And I, I won't be driving sheep here a third time. And then he turns around and walks out. Right. But... Vok, who really wants to provoke a fight, just starts shouting abuse at Olaf as he's leaving. Yeah. Uh, but Olaf just keeps his cool and leaves. I get two things from this, John. Mm -hmm. The first is that Olaf is a cool customer. He yeah. knows that they've been talking about him. And I think he makes a point of returning their sheep to them, saying, here's your 60 lost sheep. And I'm not afraid to come here. I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. So he stands there in front of them. And shows them that he's not afraid of them, mm -hmm. which is a provocation. And he's leaning on his axe. Right? See, I, I read them. I read. I read him as more innocent than that. But certainly, I think the axe shows that he's not a fool. Right. And then they they try. They do try to provoke him. But he, as you said, mm -hmm. he's smart enough not to not to take the bait right. for that. But he has shown mm -hmm. them that he is a capable and bold individual. In my mind, that's how mm -hmm. that's how I read read this particular section. But I also sure. from this section, I get the impression. That we're not supposed to like Vok very much. Oh, oh, do you? <laughs> Part two. Won't you beat my neighbor? So another year passes and Olaf is true to his word. He, he drives all the stray sheep in the area to their farms, but ignores the ones belonging to Thorbjorn. And as it happens... Once again, 60 of Thorbjorn's weathers are missing, and Thorbjorn's extended family spread the rumor that Olaf has stolen the sheep. Now, when did you become an old Yorkshire farmer, John? What? The weathers? Uh, look, I'm working from the translation. So a weather is a sheep. It's a male sheep. and Yeah, it's usually a castrated male sheep to differentiate it from a ram. But right. in practice, a lot of people just use weather as male to differentiate them from ewes. Not from me, but from female sheep. Right, from... Yes, use. I'm, yes, I am from Queens, but use in this case has a W in it. Ah, I gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, a, and a bellwether is a sheep with a bell around its neck. Yes, literally. Uh, they're they're used to help guide the flock, yeah. since sheep will just follow any guy with a bell. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we're losing a little bit of momentum here. Well, you, you could have just said sheep. You could have just said nothing. True, but all right, I, I'm not able to do that. Ask my wife. Uh, so. <laughs> 
So rumors are being spread that Olaf has turned sheep thief. Or, yes, and, and no one actually believes the rumors, though, except well, except maybe for Thorbjorn's relatives, because they, they kind of have to. Right. But the, people are hearing about it, and the rumors do reach as far as Halvrith's farm. Mm-hmm. And one evening at supper, Olaf comments that the mutton leg being served is large and fat. In other words, he's just making small talk that the year's been good food-wise for the sheep. But Halvrith replies... Yes, but I imagine that it comes from one of our sheep, not one of Thorbjorn's. It is hard to endure such injustice. Olaf doesn't respond, and his anger shows only when he presses the mutton leg against the table so hard that it snaps, and part of the bone flies up and sticks in the rafter above. (laughs) Halvrith says nothing, but smiles. So... He presses the bone onto the table so hard that it rebounds and embeds itself in the ceiling. I, I know. Yeah, it's uh, the physics are a little strange. It kind of reminds me of uh, trying to embed pencils in the ceiling in uh, the, you remember the, the ceiling tiles in high school? You throw your pencil up, get stuck. <laughs> you delinquent. <laughs> oh, that's. Uh, yes, that's I do remember that. that. Uh, so Howarth was speaking playfully. Howarth might seem like he's speaking playfully, but. That little smile at the end, I think he knows exactly how his words are affecting his son. Mm-hmm. That's something to remember later on in the saga. Howard's old, but he's not diminished mentally, and he's still got a taste for riling things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is a, clearly an example of the weaker members of the household, in this case the elderly father, prodding the young and strong about perceived insults to their honor. Yeah. Before Olaf can say anything more about it, they're interrupted by a knock at the door. And it's Thorgeth. She's an old woman who lives with her husband on a nearby farm. Well, you say lives. Well, that's because they were introduced earlier in the saga, but we didn't mention it. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, they lived together because mm-hmm. she's here to announce the death of her husband. And she's not especially upset about the actual death but, right. We should we should explain about this couple. Uh, yeah. This is the third family, the third household that we didn't talk about earlier. Yeah. Uh, Thorgerd and her husband Thormod are sort of the neighborhood eccentrics. <laughs> uh, Thormod in particular is regarded as a bit of a curmudgeon. Well, he was. No, no. I think he's still thought of that way. Okay. Uh, fair. There, there have long been rumors that he's a shapeshifter. So, oh. so he may be a werewolf, and he's kind of an unpredictable old crank. Well, nobody said werewolf. I did. Nobody else said werewolf. But anyway, True. the problem isn't lycanthropy. It's post-mortem mm-hmm. mobility, if you will. <laughs> Apparently, despite the funeral and burial and all, Thormov uh, keeps showing up and getting into bed every night. And mm-hmm. the farmhands are understandably freaking out. Well, and we can probably guess that as the other occupant of the bed, <laughs> Thorgirth isn't thrilled about it either. Probably not. Uh but Halvorth initially deflects a request for help. I'm not getting any younger, you know, and I'm not up to such things. Why don't you go to Laugabal and ask your chieftain Thorbjorn for assistance? It's to be expected that chieftains will quickly lend a hand to community members in times of need. It's a valid point, although I think he sees the failings in, in mm-hmm. it when he says it. But Thorgeth just sneers. I expect no good from that one. I'm happy enough if he does me no harm. Then ask my son Olaf. It's the work of young men to prove their manhood by such deeds as you ask. 
So people are all pretty much agreed that Thorbjorn is worse than useless as a chieftain. Yes, but that's only because Thorbjorn is worse than useless as a chieftain. Ah, I see. Uh, yes. I mean, this is actually, I think, a sign of Thorbjorn's weakness as a chieftain. Right? He's not seen as a problem solver. Uh, and worse, he's not seen as someone who will be useful even to his own followers. Mm-hmm. Right? That means all he's got working for him is fear. Fear and surprise. Surprise and fear. And ruthless efficiency. Yes. Thank you, Cardinal Jimenez. Uh, no, he's he's really just dependent on fear. Uh, he's got a pretty hollow support base apart from his actual fighting men. Yeah, but that still means that he's got a grip on local power unless someone can overcome even that hollow support. And to be fair, Absolutely. remember, they're up in the West Fjords, far away from everything mm-hmm. else. It's it's a difficult... Right, there's not a lot of support to look for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same, it's kind of the same uh, thing we saw in the north in um, in Botley's Thauter. Uh, where you have yes. these these small regions that are geographically difficult to access, and within yes. that you get these little kind of petty kingdoms, right? And, and the very limited infrastructure of Iceland, what there is of it, supports the status quo, right? Uh, so replacing even an unpopular bully of a chieftain is a tall order. Yeah. So anyway, back to Thorgeir then her search for help. So Olaf Halvorsen, um, he agrees to return to the farm with Thorgareth and stay overnight to just see what's going on because Olaf will do right. whatever anyone tells him. Right. He's a, he's a good boy. He is. Uh, but he has to wait until night because nothing unusual has been happening during the days. So like almost all the undead, Thormoth usually comes out at night. It's scarier in the dark. Uh, and that night, Olaf lies down in the hall by the end of the gable by the door. He's dressed, as always, in his shirt and trousers and nothing else. And he covers himself with a single animal pelt as a blanket. There's been a whole conversation over on the Saga Thing Discord about Olaf's choice of wardrobe. There's a possibility that Mm -hmm. it might refer to Olaf wearing what most Icelanders would have thought of as an undershirt, as his entire upper body covering. Like a linen shirt that most people would have worn underneath a wool outer shirt for weather protection and warmth, right? Hmm. But Drea, the needle lore keeper who's one of the server's resident historical fabric experts, also points out that people might have stripped down to their linen shirt to avoid getting sweat or filth on their nice outer shirt during hard work. Oh, yes, I saw this. There's also the likelihood that poorer people might have only worn one layer instead of two for reasons of economy. So then we have to ask why Olaf dresses this way. The saga says it's because he's always warm. But how do the neighbors read this guy who wanders around the fields of Iceland in his undershirt? Yeah. Is Olaf a manly undershirt wearing guy who's seen as a hard worker, a bulging bicep showing under his undershirt? Or is he a poor man whose clothes reflect a lack of wealth and standing? Or is he just an eccentric who rejects social conventions about proper dress codes? Well, let us know what you think, folks. Write to Olaf's undershirt, care of Sagathy, at the address on your screen. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Yes, on your screen. All right. Uh, so Olaf's in his underoos waiting. And it's not long before Thormov enters and sees Olaf lying there. The saga gets a, a bit dry-witted at this point. Uh, Thormov was not exactly hospitable. He reached forward at once and grabbed hold of the pelt. The pelt? Was it yes. like Olaf's blankie? Yes. Uh, well... And Olaf's not about to give up his security pelt without a fight. His whoopie. So the two of them start a tug of war over it. Right. Yeah. So the description of the fight is actually pretty good. So I'm mm-hmm. gonna I'm gonna read it to you. Olaf would not let go of his whoopie 
and held on until they tore the <laughs> <laughs> until they tore the pelt in two. When Thormod felt the strength of the man before him, he leapt onto a bench beside the bed. Olaf leapt up and reached for his axe, intending to strike him a blow, but not quickly enough. Thormod slipped under his grasp and clutched him around the waist. Olaf countered, and the most furious struggle began. Thormod gripped so hard that he tore Olaf's flesh wherever he grabbed hold. Everything in their way was smashed, and then, suddenly, the light went out. Olaf found this hardly better. Thormod now attacked in <laughs> earnest, and the fi- and then, finally, they found themselves outside. In the field lay a large piece of driftwood, and it chanced that Thormod caught his heels on the log and fell onto his back. Olaf drove a knee into his groin, and when he got the chance, dealt with him mm. in a manner he found fitting. Olaf then staggers back inside and tells everyone that he imagines they'll have no more trouble from Thormod. He then has to be put to bed and spends several days at the farm recovering from his rather vicious wounds before finally riding home to Blaumiri. Okay, that's a lot. It is a lot. Uh, this saga isn't especially given to flights of fancy when it comes to fight scenes, but it doesn't skimp on them either. It's good description. Yeah, there are elements here that are a little out of the ordinary. Uh, Olaf driving a knee into Thorma's groin as they tumble over a log and slam to the ground. I mean, that, that's some serious roughhousing. Hang on, hang, hang on now. Uh, we can talk about knees to the groin later, and we should. Sure, anytime uh, you want. But uh, are we just going to ignore this obvious Beowulf analog? Oh, no. If you hadn't brought it up, I would have. Because Olaf is waiting for a lone monster at night. He's pretending to sleep alone. In the hall. Yep, and he's dressed only in his clothes, no armor, and at least at first, no weapon. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's and and then everything kind of gets smashed as they're they're right. struggling against each Absolutely. other. Right. It's been a while mm-hmm. since we've had such a clear example of one of these, but it's very clear. Yeah, and I, I checked into this. There's a small cottage industry of scholars tracking Beowulf analogs in medieval Germanic and Scandinavian literature. Well, I mean, it's hard to resist. We've done it mm-hmm. once or twice ourselves, you know. It's 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 an addiction. We when, can once stop you take we that want. first hit of Beowulf analogs, yeah, you, you just you gotta know. go back for more. Trying to yeah. find that original high, you know. Hey, Gretu's saga's free. The rest will cost you. <laughs> uh, so the most recent work I found collecting the saga analogs to Beowulf was Tom Grant's article. It's actually from earlier this year, twenty twenty three. That recent, ba- yeah, yeah, yeah. Beowulfian echoes in the Icelandic Ector's saga. Uh, he offers a pretty exhaustive list, but there's no mention of Halvard's saga. Okay, Hector's saga, as in Hector from the Tro- from Troy. Yep. Oh well, <laughs> I mean, why aren't we just doing that, John? <laughs> Up it. next on Saga Thing, all of the uh, the classics. <laughs> as we in- put aside everything else, we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just gonna do uh, Troy Amana saga, Hector's saga. <laughs> um, is there an Achilles Achilles saga? Dying to do uh, the saga of Thomas Becket. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be great. Yeah, because that's such a curious one. Yeah. Um, but okay. So we'll stick to our family sagas for now. But uh, <laughs> this one's got bits and pieces that correlate to Beowulfian motifs. But uh, yeah, is that it? Well, that's not it. And actually, I'm not sure we need to travel all the way to England for a similar text. I, I don't you know, think I you had before. to travel all the way to England to hear Beowulf back in the day either, I don't think. Fair enough. Uh, this episode is pretty clearly also using the same template as Gretter's saga. Well, yeah, sort of. 
A wrestling match that begins at a sleeping bench and ends up outside? Check. Light mentioned as a factor in the fight? Check. Undead guy ending up on his back with the protagonist on top of him and attacking? I'm going to check that box. Mm-hmm. These are sort of loose, but the overall episode definitely has a touch of grettier flavor. Although the the knee in the undead groin is an exciting <laughs> new spice. All right. Well, so Olaf uh, does slowly recover from his injuries. And by the time he's back up and about, the story of his battle with the revenant Thormoth, it's become the talk of the district. Everyone's forgot about him trying to seduce Sigrid, and they're just talking about his, mm-hmm. his uh, draugr-killing ways. At mm-hmm. least... yeah. Almost everyone admires Olaf's deeds. Right, almost everyone. Almost, yeah. Over at Thorbjorn's farm, reviews of Olaf's performance are a little more negative. In fact, (laughs) Thorbjorn is starting to get seriously irritated by this young upstart getting all the praise in the district. Part 3. Thormoth Bratsy sleeps with the fishes. (laughs) Okay. A lot of pop culture references tonight. (laughs) So a little while after Olaf's adventure, a finback whale is stranded on the shore along the border between Havarth's and Thorbjorn's stretch of the drift rights. Right. This has come up a few times, although it's been a a while since we've had a drift whale. Uh, This is a major socioeconomic event in the area. The, The balance of resources and needs was almost always delicate. So a literal ton of fresh resources rolling up on the beach was a huge windfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the social side of it is that laying claim to a beached whale was an opportunity for more powerful landowners to extend their reach into their neighbor's land and beach claims. Only if you're already dealing with a bullying, arrogant neighbor. Like, mm-hmm. say, Thorbjorn Gothi. That's right, yeah. That sort of anticipates the plot a bit, but yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Thorbjorn and Halvarth, uh, they, they actually live very close together. They're in mm-hmm. the same valley, uh, but Halvarth's property is a little bit closer to the shore. Um, Thorbjorn lives a little bit further up the valley um, across a lake. Is that true? From, I, I, yeah. you, you've spent more time with the maps than I have. Yeah, yeah. So if you uh, if you go into sagamaps.hi.is, mm-hmm. uh, you can find yourself in Halvard's saga. And basically, my, you know, one strategy if you don't know Icelandic at all um, is to just look at the text, you know, in your English version and find the chapter that you're interested in. Um, and then you can look for place names. Well, all the place names in each chapter are highlighted as hyperlinks mm-hmm. in that uh, in that map, and it it's can show you resource. exactly exactly where. Uh, they think the the farm was and mm-hmm. in a lot of cases like we've said before the farms have the same names and they might have shifted right. you know the exact location just slightly but the general property is the same so so yeah mm-hmm. these two these two guys live very close to each other um mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm i found myself in this section really curious like in a valley that's as kind of tight as this one and you've mm-hmm. got two main main guys kind of living in it how do they divide up the drift rights of the shore when right. it's the shore of the same valley. Right. Presumably there's a pre-existing agreement, right, uh, yeah. that's been witnessed that says, you know, the dividing line is at such and such point, probably in right. reference to some other natural landmark. Yeah. It's, so it's interesting to me, like, saying, like, okay, uh, uh, Thorbjorn gets two-thirds or mm-hmm. maybe three-quarters of the shoreline right. this, Whatever it from is, this yeah. point to this point. And then Halvarth gets this mm-hmm. smaller smaller portion as a lesser man or something like that. But yeah, I, I agree that it has to be something with landmarks. It has to be something kind of like that. Or maybe it's days of the week, you know. 
You get two days of the week, anything that drifts up. I don't know. That um, seems an interesting thing. I wish they had more rules laid out in the sagas mm-hmm. for that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, when they arrive at the beach, uh, because as soon as the people spot this whale and word spreads, both Thorbjorn and Halvarth arrive. And mm-hmm. in the presence of witnesses, they agree to abide by the law speaker's verdict on ownership. And the law speaker actually just lives across the fjord on an island uh, very nearby. Right. But of course, there's a there's a, an assembled crowd of onlookers, and most of the crowd is sure the whale is on Halvard's side of the line. Yeah, that's an important detail, and that explains why Halvard is willing to wait for the local law speaker's verdict rather than risk a confrontation with his chieftain, because law speaker's going to trump the chieftain. Right. right. But but why does Thorbjorn agree? Well, because he knows the local law speaker. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> His name is Thorkettl, and he's an indecisive and soft-spoken man, but boy, does he know that law. Right, uh, which, for the record, makes him a terrible choice as law speaker. Kind of does. Uh, but you can consider who would have appointed him, and you start to understand what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, he's exactly the kind of man Thorbjorn wants for the job. Right? Mm-hmm. A quiet man who's easily pushed into deciding things the way Thorbjorn wants them decided. Uh, Thorkettl arrives, looks at the situation, checks the whale... Looks at Halvorth and Thorbjorn and the assembled crowd and says, um, uh, well, the whale belongs to, to them, of course. <laughs> to them. And Thorbjorn immediately shouts, getting very close to Thorkett's face. And who is them, you simpleton? Uh, oh, uh, you, 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 of course. The whale is yours, Thorbjorn. Well, and that decides that. Yeah. They had all agreed to abide by the law speaker's decision. And so Havarth really can't argue the points. But mm-hmm. he's extremely disappointed and annoyed about this whole thing. And of everyone course. else who witnesses the decision generally agrees that Thorbjorn acted badly and unjustly. But he still it. gets to take the carcass. He does. Possession is nine-tenths of the whale, Andy. <laughs> Obviously. And Halvarth and Olaf are growing more and more unhappy about living so near to a man such as Thorbjorn. Again, they live very close to each other and Mm -hmm. everything that they do affects each other. So Halvarth quietly begins planning to move their farm. But in the meantime, Olaf continues doing his good works in the neighborhood. One evening in the following winter, Olaf is out visiting his sheepfold when he sees another man walking across a snowy field. Right. And the second man is Bran the Strong. Uh, he's a shepherd who works for Thorbjorn Gothi. And he tells Olaf, I- I've just had a minor matter. It may seem hardly worth telling, but I was trying to drive Thorbjorn's sheep up from the beach by the water, just over there. And every time I did, a man stood in the way and waved his arms to frighten the sheep back down. It's gone on this way all day, and I'm about fed up. If I'm honest, what I want is for both of us to go there together. So Olaf, being the good Boy Scout that he is, decides this will be his good deed for the day, mm-hmm. and the two of them return to Bran's sheep. Now, sure enough, they see a man standing in the path and blocking the sheep's way home. And Olaf recognizes this figure at once. It's Thormod the zombie, Olaf's undead wrestling opponent from the previous year. Thormod's back. And deader than ever. Uh-huh. Uh, why is Thormod back? Well, Olaf defeated him and presumably took care of the corpse. Well, technically what the text said was that Olaf dealt with Thormov in the manner that seemed best. Mm -hmm. 
Now, on first reading, that would seem to mean that he does all the work needed to destroy the undead, cutting his head off, burying it deep in the ground, maybe sticking its head face first between its buttocks. You know, the huge. Yeah, uh, for those new to the podcast, hi, welcome. We how you talk doing? about sticking zombies' heads up their butts here. That's how you can tell we're professionals. We both have PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> but we also know as experts, mm-hmm. this is the approved method. Right. Back off, man. We're scientists. Uh, <laughs> That's well, I mean, it sounds like no one told Olaf the approved method. <laughs> well, it makes you wonder what he thought was the best way of dealing with the undead. Like uh, insulting their dress sense. <laughs> <laughs> Making hurtful comments about their personal hygiene. Telling them that their spouse has already moved on. <laughs> Yeah, and their kids already call the new guy dad. <laughs> That's right. Well, whatever he did, it didn't work. Uh, just to be fair, in Erpiki Saga with uh, Thorolf Twistfoot, they have to move him more than once. Right. right. They they right. they initially move him, but he yep. causes problems there too. But you, we're never gotta... told that he that anyone dealt with the body. <laughs> that's, no, that, no, that we're suggests not. that Olaf knows what he's doing, and it turns out he absolutely does not. Look, if the sagas teach us one thing, it's that you've got to deal with the undead with a firm hand. That's right. Spare the rod, spoil the undead. That's what it says. Right. So, (laughs) Thormod is back, and he's up for round two. Uh Maybe there needs to be a (laughs) t-shirt. If we could get a good drawing uh, of a zombie, uh, a draugr in the sagas. I want a list of hurtful things you can say to the undead. (laughs) Well, Thormov is back for uh, another round, and Olaf and Bronn discuss who's going to do what, and Bronn says, I'll get the sheep. <laughs> you, you take care of the undead guy. <laughs> and uh, they both take on their tasks uh, with, with gusto. So Olaf charges up the path towards Thormov, and the two of them, well, let me just read the saga, because like we said, it does a pretty decent job with the, uh, with the battle scenes. Mm-hmm. When Olaf arrived at the top of the ridge, Thormoth suddenly ducked under his grasp and clutched him around the waist. Olaf countered with all his might, and they struggled a long time. Olaf found Thormoth no more tractable after his beating. Finally, they both <laughs> fell down the slope, and they turned over and over as they tumbled through the snow. First one, then the other, was on top until they reached the beach. And then it chanced that Thormoth was on the bottom. Olaf took advantage of this and broke his back. He then made such preparations as seemed fitting, swam out to sea with him, far from land, and sank him in the deep. The place has seemed unhallowed ever since to men who sail close by. Hmm. So, is that an approved way of dealing with zombies now? You sink them, John. You sink them. Uh-huh. But they will unhallow that that uh, that shoreline They'll for do as that. long as their body, <laughs> spirit, soul haunts it. I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we also learned there that the way he dealt with him before was just beating the crap out of him and right. then walking away. <laughs> not really an approved method of dealing with Draugr. Mm-hmm. It's a starting point, but not the end point. You know, right? You have to tenderize them and then deal with them. That's right. Yeah, which is what he did here. Knock him out. And then sink his body under water. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this works, actually. Thormoth's done, despite what he does to the shoreline. And although mm-hmm. there is that bad feeling that people get sailing over the spot in the bay, so maybe he's just content to stay underwater and scare the fish, but more or less the problem's resolved. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird afterlife, but if it pays the bills, good for him. It does, yeah. So Brond and uh, Olaf, they go their separate ways, but 
when Bronn gets home with the sheep. Remember, he's going back to Thorbjorn's place. Well, Thorbjorn mm-hmm. and Vok want to know why he's so late. And Brond explains the story, and he praises Olaf for helping him and for facing down zombie Thormov. And Vok... Yeah, unsurprisingly, Vok gets snotty about it. Yes, he does. You must have been truly terrified out of your wits if you'll praise that fool. His greatest renown seems to be wrestling with revenants. And Brond looks with it, looks at him with contempt and says... It seems to me that you would be more afraid, since you wag your tail as a fox does. In no matter are you a match for Olaf. Okay, well, Thorbjorn doesn't care for that kind of talk in his house. Mm-hmm. He says, I warn you, Brand, that it won't do you any good to put Olaf ahead of me or any of my family. Right, and as a reminder here, uh, Vok is Thorbjorn's nephew. Uh-huh. So can we talk about the uh, wag your tail like a fox? I like that. Like a fox, yeah. Uh, well, that's the end of that scene, so sure. I, I did look into this a bit. Um, I looked at the Old Norse. Uh, oh, which good reads, for you. Yeah, you know. Uh, Feels a little colloquial. Yeah, I mean, if we translate it word by word, literally, we get something like, you are most in such a matter like foxes in their holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is evocative and makes some sense. He's accusing Vok of being... Likely to run like a fox from danger. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to see how this has been translated. Uh, Paul and Dorothy Durenberger render the, the insult as... The Durenbergers! Uh, Have you been to the one insult. of their 4th of July cookouts? Oh, no. No, no. No. <laughs> I'm ignoring you. Uh, Dorothy makes a potato salad that is oh, to die God. for. Oh, so we're just going to keep going with this? Um... <laughs> 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 uh, so mention uh, the Durenbergers again, see what happens. <laughs> uh, the Durenbergers render the insult as you are mostly talk like foxes are mostly tails. Ah, uh, see, now I like that because that's that that preserves the sense of colloquial meaning. Yeah. But then we have the Morris and Magnuson translation from 1891. It's a uh, uh, you know what 19th century translations of sagas are like. Well, lots of ye olde translation, yeah. Oh, with a trowel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the translation is, Thou wouldst have been more afraid, for ever art thou greatest in talk, as the fox in its tail, and in no wise art thou a match for Olaf. That's that's great. Uh, did you happen to catch uh, their translation of the saga's title? Yeah, it's the tale of Howard the Halt. <laughs> Howard <laughs> it the loses Holt. something in the process. And our translator, uh, Frederick Heinemann, uh, mm-hmm. he gives us the wag your tail like a fox line. Mm-hmm. That one actually makes sense based on what I looked at. Because it turns out that foxes do wag their tails mostly for the same reasons that dogs do. They mostly wag when they're excited. But they do sometimes do it when they're happy. Uh, uh-huh. There was a Russian geneticist named uh, Belyev who bred something like 40 generations of silver foxes to end up with a domesticated and friendly litter. Um, There's actually a documentary about dogs that you can watch Mm -hmm. that shows this uh, in action. But they wag their tails more than wild foxes do, but still not as much as dogs. That's really cool. But is that a matter of breeding for infantilization? I mean, domesticated pets are usually bred for immature characteristics, aren't they? 
maybe, or but there might be a link to trying to either communicate or ingratiate themselves with us, right? So mm-hmm. they learn these behaviors. Right, um, there's right. there's some controversy about whether Believ pre-selected his foxes for friendliness, which would obviously affect <laughs> the outcome of his experiment. I'm really interested in knowing how you would pre-select foxes for friendliness. I mean, you, you offer them a strawberry and you see what happens. You right. <laughs> but you offer them a you, firm handshake. Yeah. <laughs> This 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 one's a bit too bold for me. Squeezes my hand too. How did he squeeze my hand? Um, so, but yeah, if people are interested, it's called the Russian Farm Fox Experiment, and it's pretty widely discussed in geneticist circles. Um, and uh, like I said, there's a documentary. It was on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it with my my son a long time ago. But uh, yeah, we're officially falling out in the long grass here. You want to bring right. us back? To- uh, sure. So so the point is that Brand is accusing Vok of being all talk. And that he'd turn tail and run in a real confrontation. Yeah, and that Thorbjorn is starting to hear from his own men about what a great guy Olaf is, which, not great. Ah, I'm sure it's fine. (laughs) Part 4. Why do that to a dead man? Well, that's that's a good question. It's a valid question. Uh, So, in the spring... Old Halvorth moves his farm to another part of Isfjord, because, as he tells his son Olaf, I do not feel like having Thorbjorn as a neighbor anymore, because we just don't have the strength to hold our own against him. And Olaf is not happy about this. Well, I mean, Olaf isn't so sure that he doesn't have the strength to stand up to Thorbjorn. Maybe they do. Well, no, but he reluctantly agrees, and so they move further uh, out and across the fjord to some unclaimed farmland on the other side of the water. It's a place That's that right. comes to be called Halverstaden. Now, John, uh, you are the uh, names expert. Yeah. Uh, how how do you think it comes to be called Halverstaden? That's a no one could choice. say. It's they're very ah. very creative. Uh, so <laughs> it's really it's the 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 reasons are lost to time. Oh uh, well. But we're going to leave them there for a bit, uh, painting the new sign and unpacking their boxes, because okay. Thorbjorn is busy arranging a marriage for himself. A marriage? Mm-hmm. As if, as if someone would marry Thorbjorn. Well, you know. Well, There's someone out there for be... everyone, Andy. <laughs> well, let's be good little Olafs and mm-hmm. try to do this as quickly as we can. But oh, when I say that, I, I know that we'll do this in 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so the woman that Thorburn's decided to marry is the sister of Guest Odlifson. Ah, uh, yes, good old Guest. Uh-huh. For those who don't remember him, Guest Odlifson has shown up in a few of our sagas. Uh, most recently, he was the man who Gudrun Odlifson's daughter trusted to interpret her dream of her four husbands, and also the man who was buried with the other guy on top of him. Who, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is no, who not is on buried top of next to next to? It's uh, Oswif. It's <laughs> Gudrun's to. father is buried next. Oh to him. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and there's like a, a miracle that brought them together. They both right, love Jesus right. and they're, they're, they, Well, as he says, we'll live much closer together one day than we do now. One day you will mount me in my grave. No, 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 no. Oh. Just just alongside. I'm I'm mistaken. Sorry. Uh, well, you don't know how big the grave was. Well, that's fair. Uh, Guest usually shows up in a minor role in sagas. He's a wise man with borderline magical powers of prognostication. But this is that's a little right. different. In this saga, he's just a powerful man with a reputation to maintain, and he's not excited about the prospect of Thorbjorn as a brother-in-law. And he tells him so pretty bluntly. 
But mutual friends intervene, and eventually they talk guests around to this very, very Man, unwise you, you marriage. You really just want to jump ahead, don't you? Well, I'm tr- I said it. We're trying to be a good little Olaf. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do what's right and okay. move quickly. All right. So, so guest finally agrees to the marriage, but on the stipulation that Thorbjorn make a handshake agreement to, as he puts it, leave off your unjust acts and wrongdoing. Give everyone their due and to abide by law and order. And he also adds that if Thorbjorn hmm. breaks that agreement, Guest will annul the marriage immediately and separate the couple. Now, Thorbjorn agrees to this, of course, but it's not like he thinks he's agreeing to anything onerous because mm-hmm. if he's a true villain, he doesn't really think that he's ever done anything wrong. <laughs> so in his opinion, his behavior in the future will be fine. Just fine. Yeah, just fine. So... Thorbjorn and Guest Sister are married later that same summer. Okay, now I need to stop you here. Yeah. And we need to address something. What's that? Guest is my thingman. Yeah. And I, I took him in Ref the Sly Saga. Mm-hmm. And I know him pretty well. That was a while ago. We're, yeah. We've gotten close. And sure. the, the guest that I know from my hall, <laughs> th- this isn't representative of, uh-huh. the, of the man. Um, earlier in the, in the episode, we talked about the... The saga scholars talking about this this saga being inconsistent, uh, unrealistic, uh, characterizations not really fitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's true with Guest, Old Leifson. I think that's um, fair, yeah. I mean, Guest's kind entire of marriage, point is they can see the future, right? Yeah, yeah. Why would he agree to marry his sister off to this scoundrel from the Westfields? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I, I agree, actually. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, a guest is, everything about him suggests that he would know better than to marry Thorbjorn into his family. Yeah. Oh, what's that, guest? He just stepped in. Uh, oh, he says thank you, and he will he will try to avoid stabbing you when we finally come to blows huh. at the end of Saga thing. So kind. But he will take out the rest of your thing, man. He has no Great. qualms with that. Great. Uh, I don't but remember you, Guest being much of a warrior, but okay. Hey, uh, when when things go down, mm-hmm. everyone in our hall right. will have to pick up a sword or an axe or a pike or a whatever So get to work. Anyway, if you're done with your idle <laughs> threats, uh, once uh, word gets back to the farm, back to Logabal, that, uh, that Thorbjorn has gotten married... Sigrith, and Sigrith, remember, is the woman that Thorbjorn's been keeping at his house. As soon as she hears about this, she and her relative Thoralf immediately have Sigrith's assets at Lagabal appraised. And yeah. then she flees to Thoralf's farm before Thorbjorn comes home. See, now, generally speaking, Thorbjorn doesn't like it when people do things that embarrass him. Mm-hmm. And the... I, uh, how, how would you qual- qualify this? This is a, an, uh, a re-abduction... An anti-abduction? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, anti-abduction because she's being brought home by a member of her own family. It's not exactly home, though, but... but a rescue. You know, she's, I think the rescue. word we're looking for, Andy, is rescue. Why didn't... That's the obvious word. <laughs> the rescue of The secret. anti-abduction. That's, I mean, rescue is so much easier to say. That's the future of my <laughs> communication skills. <laughs> But yeah, the 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 rescue of Sigrid is pretty embarrassing. 
especially because several of his neighbors were part of the group who appraised Sigrid's belongings. Therefore, mm. kind of the implication is that not only did they stand by while she packed up and left, they kind of approve of this this moving of Sigrid, this rescue of Sigrid. Well, I mean, no one likes Thorbjorn, really. Uh, there, but there's not much he can do about it at the moment. Uh, he rages a bit. He threatens the neighbors who are part of the plan. But that's about all he can do. Well, he's just brought a new wife home. I mean, she might not be particularly thrilled with him getting too obsessed with this young woman, this concubine, mm-hmm. if you will, who yep. has just escaped his house. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, and of course, a uh, guest's threat to annul the marriage if Thorbjorn does anything embarrassing or shameful, that's got to be weighing on the back of his mind as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it is, Thorbjorn becomes even more arrogant and unpleasant than before just because of this felt connection now with Guest's family, right? Yeah. Uh, Guest is uh, a big man. And now Thorbjorn thinks that he also is a big man. And he's it, he's looking for someone to take his frustration out on. Hey, speaking of which, over at Halfasather, uh Olaf is carrying on with his do-gooding ways. One day, he speaks with a shepherd who has lost a few of his sheep. Now, Olaf tells him, cheer up, my friend. Go look after the sheep that you got. And I'll look for the missing ones. All right. So this is now Olaf's good deed for the day today. Well, one, maybe one of many. Who knows? Uh-huh. So Olaf goes walking out along the fjord. And before long, he finds the sheep. Uh, In- they're, they're milling around nearby to the farm of Thoralf, uh, who we've just been discussing. right? And he decides, well, as long as I'm in the neighborhood, he decides to stop and visit Sigrid before heading back. Yeah, uh, this is just like, you know, a mile or two, you know, not not too far down the fjord. Yeah. And everyone knows where Sigrid is. Yeah. And Thorbjorn knows too, obviously. And so when he gets word that Olaf is lurking around at Thoralf's farm, he can make a pretty shrewd guess as to why. Uh, and so while Olaf and Sigrid are talking in the doorway, Sigrid sees over Olaf's shoulder that a ship is coming in. And on it, she sees Thorbjorn and Vak with Thorbjorn carrying his sword, Gunnlogi. It's a sword which is rumored never to fail to hit its target. And, as she says, he intends an evil deed. So everyone knows where Sigrid is. Uh, yeah, and, and Thorbjorn obviously also knows where <laughs> she is. And so when he hears that Olaf is lurking around, he's able to make a pretty shrewd guess about where to find him. Uh, and so while Olaf and Sigrid are talking in the doorway... Sigrid sees over Olaf's shoulder that a ship is coming in. And on it, she sees Thorbjorn and Vak. And by the way, Sigrid has very good eyesight because she can also see that Thorbjorn is carrying his sword, Gunnlogi. It's a sword which is rumored never to fail to hit its target. She tells Olaf he intends an evil deed. Yeah. Yeah, she she might be uh, related to that shepherd in uh, right, Laksala, right. who gave the vivid descriptions of, mm-hmm. of everyone. Um, yeah, she's got very good eyes. Uh, even though Olaf believes her when she says this, he refuses to run away because he's, as far as he's concerned, not doing anything wrong, right? Right. And so he tells Sigrid that she'll hear of courageous exploits if he and Thorbjorn clash. But she's deeply upset and says only that she will likely not hear of them. Yeah, we'll deal with that in a minute. Uh, right now, Thorbjorn and Vak come ashore, and instead of hiding... Olaf goes out to meet the boat. Hello, Thorbjorn. 
Where is it you're going? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm off to visit my sister, Thordis, uh, Vok's mother. She lives just over that way. We could walk together. <laughs> oh, no. No, I'm here collecting sheep like I always do. Always collecting sheep. You know me, old sheep collecting Olaf. That's what they call me. <laughs> That's what they call him. People might say that sheep drovers were coming up in the world if you were seen walking with me. <laughs> you let me worry about that. Well, he sh- uh, you know who should be worried about this is Olaf. Yes. <laughs> uh, but the three of them start walking together. Uh, mm. And as they're leaving... Olaf just casually picks up a long boat hook and carries it with him, sort of twirling it idly and keeping one eye on Thorbjorn's sword arm. As you said before, he's innocent, but he's not stupid. Right. And I think he, I I just feel like he's bold and he he feels Mm -hmm. like he's got this. Yeah. And that's why he picks this up. He's like, Mm -hmm. I got this. So he's innocent, Mm -hmm. but he's a little bit rash. He's not handling this the right way. Well, and he might end up paying. He's handling price. it the way that sort of manly behavior demands. No, scurry. No, I mean I'm scurrying off in front of the woman he's trying to impress is not going to happen for a saga protagonist. Right, but what does a good saga hero do in this situation? Not, uh, not this. I mean, probably attack them outright. <laughs> I mean, it would have been it, the, the the fight would have happened a lot sooner. Right. Right. Yeah. But there, there is what I like about this is he picks up that boat hook, mm-hmm. and as they walk together, you can feel this nice tension building up. Mm-hmm. So Thorbjorn and Vok keep slowing down and trying to drop behind Olaf, but he, Olaf's no dummy. He stays mm-hmm. on his guard. He never lets them get out of his eyeline. Right, and finally they reach the fork in the road where their paths diverge. And at this point, Thorbjorn's lost all patience with what for him passes as subtlety. He yeah. turns and says, All right, Vok, there's no need to delay any longer what we've planned. He really thinks Olaf's been fooled up to this point. Or does he just not care? Well, either way, it's clobbering time. <laughs> uh, Thorbjorn and Vok both draw swords. Olaf takes his boat hook in both hands and prepares his defense. There's a, a small hill next to the road, and Olaf jumps onto it. Isn't there always... There's always a hill or there's a big rock a hill. or a haystack or something... There's actually uh, an entire sort of part of the Icelandic government at this time that is only in charge of putting up small hills next to the sides of roads to provide for just this kind of eventuality. Ah, I see. Okay. Well, that's very good for the Hill Commission. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I I believe that um, Olaf says something to the effect of, It's over, Thorbjorn. I have the high ground. I have an unbeatable sword and a friend. Oh, well, good point. Have at you! And he- yeah, <laughs> that's that's word for word in the saga. <laughs> yeah, you can double check that. And Definitely. it was yes, exactly. It has inspired uh, literature and film through the ages. This Correct. Uh, so they battle for some time. Uh, Olaf hits both of them several times with the hook, inflicting bloody wounds. But Thorbjorn keeps chopping bits off the shaft of the boat hook, till eventually Olaf's left with holding a handful of splinters. At that point, he switches over to his axe, and the three of them fight for a while longer. Eventually, mm. all three of them are injured, but it's still anyone's fight. Yeah. And meanwhile, at the next farm, Thorbjorn's sister Thordis hears the battle and looks to see who the combatants are. Wait, Thorbjorn wasn't lying about his sister living on this road? <laughs> uh, no, actually, if you would visit huh. sagamaps.hi.is yeah. and you looked at this, 
and you just went through the first chapter, you would see that she does live mm-hmm. literally down the road from where they are. That's well, there you go. There you go. So sometimes it could pay to, you know, some of the saga yeah. might make more sense to you if you looked at the topography, John. Sure. But anyway, uh, she hears this fight and she turns to her other son, Vox brother Scarf, and she says, oh, wait, John, do you want to do Thordis or do you want to do Scarf? Uh, please yourself. There's lots of voices to keep track of in this episode. Well, the good news is that we're about to lose one of them. So she tells <laughs> Scarf to go and help his uncle and brother. But Scarf refuses. I'd rather fight with Olaf than against him. It's shameful in my eyes for three men to attack one. I'll not be going anywhere, mother. Is this actual integrity in the family of Thorbjorn and Vok? Yeah, but I, I hope you noticed that the voices, I mean, it's a I did. It's a I appreciate genetic, the family resemblance. I tried uh, to match it a, up. Yeah, that's a, it's a very surprising thing to find uh, integrity in this family. Uh, yeah. Somewhat less surprising, though. Is that Thoris immediately shames her son for having principles. <laughs> right. I suppose it is true what is said. Much remains hidden. I thought I had two courageous sons, but now I see that you are a daughter, not a son. Now let's test whether I am a braver daughter than you are a son. She leaves, mm. and Scarf angrily grabs an axe and runs out to the fight. It's not a very nice thing to say to your son, but uh, it works, and... Scarf's brave and ethical stand doesn't last too long, does it? Nope. Uh, so Scarf approaches the battle and creeps up behind Olaf. Thorbjorn and Vox see him coming, but Olaf doesn't know he's there. Yeah. Scarf's got a high stealth modifier. Like a cat. Or a well-oiled tin man. Hmm, not yeah. that. Yeah, actually, he was born with little cat feet. Uh, he doesn't usually like to talk about it. He's a medical oddity. Did you see the times where there were only one set of footprints? That was when you were being stalked by a tiny cat with an axe. (laughs) Adorable and deadly. Scarf the Uh, cat. So, (laughs) Scarf sneaks up on his fuzzy little toe beans and buries his axe between Olaf's shoulder blades. It's an odd moment for me. It really is. In a saga is. battle that someone's able to sneak up on Olaf like this. Although he, he is he is occupied with other combatants, but still. Absolutely. But also he has tiny cat feet. <laughs> right. But this the, the idea that you're in the middle of a battle and then someone comes up behind you and hits you in the back with an axe would suck. That would suck. Yes, well, of course it would. Uh, and Olaf is not happy about it. He spins around. <laughs> And crashes his axe down on Scarf's skull. Ah, so he rolled higher. Yeah, a little bit. Than Scarf did. Scarf got the Uh, higher initiative, but uh, Olaf rolled an at 20. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that means turning his back on Thorbjorn, who immediately strikes a second blow on Olaf's back. Mm -hmm. Now, Scarf and Olaf both fall dead to the ground at the same moment, with Olaf killed by a pair of blows struck from behind. Let's have a moment of silence for poor Olaf. He was a good man, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, cheerful, thrifty, brave, obedient, clean, reverent. (laughs) Well... You genuinely surprised me there, John. 
did not expect that one. <laughs> I I won't say that's a eulogy, but <laughs> it is. It's fitting. It's it, it's a payoff to a joke you've been building across this whole episode, and I I I appreciate it. Sometimes I'm proud of myself. <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Olaf. I was wondering why you kept forcing the Boy Scout reference, but yep. you you just had that in your pocket, waiting to bring it out. <laughs> Well, it hit. You yeah. hit your target, John. <laughs> uh, but by the way, uh, he's not going to rest in peace because no? Thorbjorn, who at this point we have to say has some anger management issues, turns Olaf's body over and slashes at his mouth. Why? Ruining his face and knocking out a bunch of teeth. And even Vok, Vok is surprised by this level of viciousness. Why, why do that to a dead man? Well, you know you've crossed the line when the nastiest little weasel, the, uh, what was it, a of a, a, a monkey lizard, Wachian, whatever? <laughs> a Kowakian monkey lizard, yes. That's right, a Kowakian monkey lizard. When one of those thinks you're mm. being excessively mean, yeah, something's wrong. But Thorbjorn just says, I do it because I imagine they'll be useful later. And so he wraps the teeth in the cloth and keeps them in his bag. Yeah, this is rough. Uh, from a gore standpoint and from a villainy standpoint, it's one of the nastier killings we've had in a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'd say Thorbjorn is turning out to be a cardboard cutout of a villain. Not a lot of nuance, just a bad person that we're supposed to root against. And he's not real, well, but he I is. Mean, if if we're searching for something decent to say about him, he's, he's at least... We're not, we're not trying to find something decent to say about him. <laughs> I know. It was a segue. It's not a good as the, segue. As the, killing of the, as, as the killing spreads, the story of the killing spreads, Thorbjorn is at least honest about the quality of Olaf's defense. I mean, I doubt he's so forthcoming about the way he killed Olaf and desecrated his corpse. Well, probably not. But still, he gives Olaf his due as a fighter. And as a result, Olaf's reputation only grows after his death. As the news of Olaf's death spreads quickly, uh, the news of Scarf's death <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> not so much. Not so much. Yeah, you know, that was something about the fight I meant to mention earlier. Mm -hmm. Vok and Thorbjorn are calmly discussing the merits of knocking teeth out of Olaf's mouth post-mortem. And mm -hmm. neither of them seems all that bothered about Vok's brother Scarf lying dead with Olaf's axe in his skull. Yeah, I mean, I mean, on the one hand, neither one of these guys seem like sentimentalists, but it is Vok's brother. Yeah. I think this is an example of the limits of this writer's attention to character depth. Maybe. It's also just a slightly more pronounced version of something we see in the sagas a lot. The lack of emotional reactions, right? Mm. It's not that there aren't emotional scenes in the sagas, but they usually play on the silences of the text. What isn't said, not what is. I mean, sure, of course. But a well-crafted saga can show us that silent grief or yeah. anger or whatever. This saga, and to be clear, I am enjoying this saga. But this one just gives me the impression that Scarf's death isn't meant to be ipso facto significant. It matters for what it adds to Olaf's death. Scarf himself isn't important. 
I suppose, but Olaf is definitely important. I mean, Scarf is one of the bad guys. He's part of that yeah. crew, and so when they die, kind I mean, of. the bad a guys. A bad guy with a conscience, though. They, yeah, but the bad guys don't show that kind I of know. feeling. So I wouldn't be too shocked if they're not boohooing over the death of Scarf. Mm. Um, and the the first consequence we learn about is the disappearance of Sigrith. Immediately after Olaf's death, her absence is noticed. And despite an extensive search, no trace of her is ever found. Unsolved mysteries. Isafjörth edition. It is unsolved. And it's a weird loose end to create. You know, uh, when I first read this saga years ago, uh, I made a note about Sigrid, uh, assuming that she'd turn up later in the story. And when she didn't, I tried to make sense of the sequence of events, and at the time, I decided that Thorbjorn had stolen her away again. Hmm. That's a, a reading. Wildly <laughs> conjectural. And oh. I dare dare I say wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's but fair. a reading. No, I know. I know. It's the danger of first readings, right? Uh, yeah. I think we're supposed to understand that she either killed herself nope, nope, or nope. somehow left Iceland. Or just moved uh, to another. I mean, Iceland's a big place. Sure, I understand. Uh, but I think I get such Bluebeard vibes off of Thorbjorn that I'm just very ready to believe that he'd murder a woman and hide the body. Um, It's a good thing thousand-year-old literary antagonists can't sue for defamation. You know what? He's welcome to bring it to court anytime he cares to begin or resume a corporeal existence. There you go. Until then, I fear no monodimensional caricatures of saga villainry. Do your worst, Thorbjorn. So brave. Um, John, I would point <laughs> out, um, having read the saga myself, yeah. um, what Sigrid says when Olaf tells her that he will do some great deeds when he's attacked and she will hear of them. And she says, I will not hear of them. Mm-hmm. I think as she sees Thorbjorn coming, she knows what's coming for her, mm-hmm. which is another flees. abduction. Yeah. And she yeah. just flees and goes to a new location, maybe in Iceland, maybe not. But she goes somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's that really well. well established by the saga. Um, you, I you, think, this, I think yeah. the saga deliberately introduces the ambiguity there, though, to suggest the possibility that she's you know, died, that she's killed herself. But I think it, you want to no say suggestion. that. There's no textual suggestion that she does so. Well, there's always room for interpretation. (laughs) But uh, let's get back to the story, shall we? (laughs) Now, the the loss of Olaf obviously hits Haworth and Bjarki hard. Uh, Remember, Bjarki is uh, Haworth's wife. We haven't mentioned her, but she will become a player in our next episode. Mm -hmm. Haworth takes to his bed and remains there for an entire year in his grief. And for that summer, Bjarki runs the farm herself with the help of her servant, uh, Thor Hattled Fleetfoot, mm-hmm. uh, the fast guy from the very beginning of the right. episode. And while there's a great deal of sympathy... Oh, and don't get too excited. He's not running anywhere this episode, but no, he's there. He's d- no. <laughs> but while there's a great deal of sympathy for them, no one steps forward to take charge of the prosecution for Olaf's death. Uh, this is not a right. family that's connected uh, and has yep. people to represent them when they can't right. handle things themselves. And it's explicitly stated that everyone just assumes that no justice will be forthcoming, since Halvorth is regarded as helpless, and as the saga says, also there was not much hope for justice from such powerful men as Thorbjorn and Vak. Yeah, mostly uh, Thorbjorn. I don't know that. Yeah, I mean entirely Thorbjorn, I would assume, yeah. yeah. 
In fact, the only person who doesn't give up on the idea of a settlement is Bjargi, Olaf's mother. Um, but remember, uh, Bjargi, as a woman, is unable to bring a lawsuit herself. That's she right. needs her husband yep. to do it. Um, that's yep. the, the, the custom in, in Iceland at this time. So after letting her husband lie in bed for a year, Bjargi finally tells him that he needs to travel to Laugabol and ask for compensation from Thorbjorn for Olaf's death. It would be manly for him, who is incapable of heroic deeds, to at least speak when it might do him some good. But don't be too demanding if he behaves well. Yeah, I mean, she's realistic, at least. But insistent. And Howarth mm-hmm. eventually agrees. He rolls out of bed, and he rows around the fjord to Thorbjorn's farm. And when he arrives, Thorbjorn greets him well and politely, and even invites him inside, where several of his men are lounging around. Right, it all seems like it's going reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once they've exchanged the news, Halvorth says, Matters have come to this. I have come to demand compensation for my son, Olaf, who you killed without cause. Now, Thorbjorn, in true villain style. Oh, my God. I mean, you, you pick your movie with a gang of brutes. Yeah. With, with a leader. Whether mm-hmm. it's a Western, a gangster film, whatever. Mm-hmm. This is this is the scene you've seen many times. Someone goes in and asks for justice, and it doesn't go well. So Thorbjorn looks this man up and down, and he finally says, Well, it's widely known that I'm not one who gives compensation, though I've killed men before now. But you had a courageous son. And your loss was great. So I offer you a compensation, though you may think it's not more than a pittance. <laughs> There's a horse just outside the hayfield wall. My men call it old Nag. He's old and gray, a bit broken down. And recently hasn't been able to get up off the ground. <laughs> but, uh. He's been eating chaff the last few days, maybe on the mend. Go ahead and take that horse home. If you like him, you can keep him. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, what he's come up with here is a pretty straightforward and insulting description of Halvorth himself. Yeah, that's that's great. Yes. Uh, Old and gray and hasn't been able to get out of bed for a while. Mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward. But I mean, this is the height of wit. For his crew and hangers-on. And, John, I have to tell you, Mm -hmm. in my list of, you know, so far, in my list of, up to this point in the saga, my list of notable witticisms, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is at the top. (laughs) This one right here. I mean, we got a lot more saga to go. I I agree it's pretty good so far. Up to this point, Mm -hmm. this is the only thing that's been kind of clever and witty, even if it's insulting. Give it time. Well... Set up to now. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and Vok, who's lurking around the edges of this gathering, just like every 80s movie with a gang of bad guys, mm-hmm. he's that guy that starts laughing loudly and harshly. <laughs> yep. It's uh, Bluebeard the Killer and his sidekick, Salacious Crumb. Not the pair up we wanted, but the pair up we deserved. Well, uh, speak for now, yourself. Halvorth's an old man, but he's also a retired Viking. 
Uh, and he's not used to being humiliated in public, especially not by a little cretin like Vok. But he's both old and very outnumbered. And so all he can do is turn on his heel and leave in a rage. Mm-hmm. He doesn't stop until he reaches his farm, where he immediately returns to his bed and spends another year stewing in his grief and anger. Hmm. Uh, one important question. Yeah. Does he stop and get Old Nag and bring her back? Nope. Is Old Nag real? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. I don't think so. It's too perfect of a metaphor for Halvorth himself. I don't see yeah. a, a Old Nag as a real animal. Yeah, I tend to agree. So uh, around the fjord, uh, everyone takes this as just more proof that Thorbjorn is an overbearing and ill-natured jerk. But no one seems willing to do anything about it. And that's the mm-hmm. problem, right? Bjargi is still running the farm and racking her brains for some way to get compensation or revenge for Olaf's death. But it doesn't look like Halvorth's got much fight left in him. I mean, not yet, anyway. Oh. Uh, but that's where we're going to have to leave the story for now. That is... John, he's in bed, and he's <laughs> depressed, and he yep. can't do anything. Where's yep. the justice? How can we leave the people there? Hey, sometimes the bad guys win, Andy. At least until the next episode. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, since we're done with Lockstala Saga and the parade of people we need to talk about, maybe we can finally reintroduce the listener rune sack. It's a good thing, too, because the sack is stuffed. Although, well, you know, yeah, the Discord your... people on the Discord cover a lot of the, like the rune sack was. Yeah. That thread was designed for just us to collect questions, but then the listeners answer most of them, and we don't have to right, get involved at all. they're better answered questions than we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's good, because there's so, a lot of experts in there that know stuff that we don't know. Uh, so see what you've got. Uh, reach your grubby paw in there and grab a grubby. question. Grubby paw? I washed my I mean, hand at least once today. Oh, good. Yeah. Just the one so, hand, though. Well, I mean, I only use the one. Um <laughs> Sorry. I have a great question here from our friend Dana Dalachek. Do you remember Dana? Hey, this is Dana from our Saga Brief interview on Viking Age sailing, right? That's right. The one and only. He is still out there sailing around and doing maritime archaeology and all the interesting and fascinating adventurous stuff that scholars like us dream of but just don't mm-hmm. have the uh, ability. Right. The motivation. Less, lesser and lazier scholars. Yeah, we like to sit at computers and read books mm-hmm. and talk to students about stuff. Yep. But doing things, physical yes. things, it's just uh, not really what we do. Right. Um, Hiya, anyway. Dana. It's glad, to, glad to know you're still listening. That's right, yeah. So uh, he uh, occasionally shares his thoughts about topics related to sailing in the sagas on our unofficial, official Saga Thing Discord. And mm-hmm. he recently wrote about the death of Thorkettle Eilson. And the somewhat miraculous survival of the sword Skofnung in Chapter 76 of Laxdala Saga. And that was in our episode discussion thread on Discord. And uh, he shared an interesting theory about that. Okay. I mean, I like theories, especially from experts who know more about a subject than I do, which, I mean, let's face it, isn't hard. Right. Same here. Now, he says that he's just getting to the judgment section on Laxdala Saga, but that he's been thinking a lot about the death of Thorkett. Remember that Thorkettle drowned in a shipwreck off the coast of Iceland in Breidafjord while he was trying to move all that Norwegian timber up to his property. 
Right. So he was planning on making an exact replica of a large stave church that he'd seen in Trondheim. And that was despite King Olaf's prophetic doubts. Exactly, yeah. And according to the saga, Thorkettle has the timber aboard a ferry, uh, a feria in, in Old Norse, which is used to haul cargo and transport goods. Yeah, it's a, it's a good Germanic word, and it means to ferry, if anyone's interested. <laughs> oh, really? Feria? Yes, sir. That's why we get the big bucks. Insightful comparative philology like that. I get it. Well, thank you for your contribution. But Thorkettle's ferrying. Oh, see, there's the verb. Ferrying. You're ridiculous. You know that. <laughs> I'm, I've been told, yes. Yeah. Anyway, the the winds pick up as Thorkettle ferries his timber through Breidefjord, and things get dangerous pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And soon the winds are blowing so strong that the ship is actually overturned, and everyone aboard drowns, as we discussed in the episode. But Skolfnung, which Thorkett had with him, somehow managed to survive. I have to say, I appreciate that you're turning Skolfnung into a character in this little storytelling. Yes, well, I mean, the verbiage of the saga suggests mm-hmm. that Skolfnung yep. like, is clinging to the, the, the shipwreck. But uh, right. Skolfnung survived this shipwreck and is later found stuck fast in the ship's timbers on the shores of an island that was thereafter called Skolfnung's Island, or at least as the translations we've been right. looking at suggest. All right. So far, this all sounds familiar. So what's what's Dana got to say about the fate of Skolfnung? Well, he wonders how and why Skolfnung ended up buried in the timbers of the ship. And mm-hmm. he wants to know more about the specific language used in the text to help explain the how and the why of this. How did Skolfnung get lodged in or buried in the timbers of the boat? All right. So language question. It's always mm-hmm. fun. Uh, you said he had a theory. Yes. Uh, he writes and he's basing his theories on his understandings of common maritime practice uh, that he's aware of. Um, mm-hmm. He says, my theory is this. To save the ship, you would cut the load loose. On the Faroe Islands, men still must carry a knife on board for that reason exactly. And as a last resort, one would cut the rig and the mast. Thus, Thorkettle as the skipper would have to cut the mast. Traditionally, Mm -hmm. it is the skipper that takes the first blow. So what if, lost in translation, the sword was lodged into the mast, indeed a large beam, and Mm -hmm. it shows Thorkettle fighting to save the ship, which... That's See, theory, and I like it. Yeah, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Um, we've actually we just something like this in Lockstella Saga, right? Uh, earlier in the saga, Thor, uh, whose ship is going down, begins throwing the luggage of his mother overboard yeah. uh, as the ship begins to sink in order to lighten the load and attempt to save the ship. That's right, uh, yeah. So it's interesting. That's it, That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, so uh, to oblige Dana and all those who are curious, I have mm-hmm. looked into this subject. I spent far too much time in dictionaries. I surveyed pictures of ships, and I familiarized mm-hmm. myself with this issue in far too much That's detail what for what is. Yep. Let's be honest, John. It's a fairly simple kind of thing. <laughs> you know, uh, it might yep feel fairly obvious, but uh, we mm-hmm. can't help ourselves. That's what we now, do. There's no doubt that we've got the circumstances that Dana describes that would call for the cutting of the load and perhaps mm-hmm. even the mast. The text tells us that the winds broke out and a gust of wind broke the sail and overturned the ship. And so a load of timber, that is the size and weight being moved by Thorkettle, would absolutely put the ship in a precarious situation if the winds are too mm-hmm. high. The question is where exactly Skolfnung was found. The obvious starting place 
It's got to be the Icelandic text. Mm-hmm. So we should begin with where we're told Skoltung is kept on board before the winds pick up. Now, according to the translation, Thorkettle had his sword Skolfnung with him in a chest. And this is the Kaneva Kuhn's translation in the most recent Penguin Classics edition. Now, the term here in Icelandic is istoki, which mm-hmm. rather inconveniently can mean either a stock trunk uh, or a log of wood, or it can mean a chest or case. And I think mm-hmm. given the context, it doesn't make sense that Thorkettle would have at the beginning kind of hacked his sword into the wood of the ship. That would be mm-hmm. ridiculous. So I think given the value of the sword, the context here, it's pretty clear that he's got Skolfnung in a case of some kind on board the ship. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. But we, I mean, we should remember that earlier in the saga, Legbiter, which is a different sword, was kept hanging on a peg within the ship near where its owner, German was sleeping. Right, yeah. And his his wife, Thordis, lifted it from him there. Excellent memory, John. Uh, yeah, but we're, we're also told that Germund was a suspicious type that never let Legbiter out of his sight, so, you know. Right, right. so he'd keep it nearby even at night, naturally. Naturally, right. Still, I think it's fair to say that Skolfnung is a precious sword and it's kept neatly in a trunk or a case of some kind while aboard the ship. And why right. would he need I the mean, sword while he's, you know, actively in the ship? Right. And one thing we know about Skofnung is that there are lots of rules for properly maintaining that sword. Exactly. Right? You right. wouldn't just be casual about it. Uh, but also, you know, as you suggest, a normal person wouldn't assume they were going to need a sword much at sea. Especially right? on a ferry almost, cargo ship. Yeah. I mean, you've almost certainly got a belt knife and that would do for most tasks. Right. Now, the next piece of the puzzle is where the sword is found. And the Mm -hmm. translation tells us that Skolfnung had lodged in the inner timbers of the ferry itself and washed ashore at Skolfnung's island. And for those of you who are reading the free online translations from the 19th, uh, early 10th, uh, from the late 19th or early 20th centuries, the line is translated similarly. Uh, One of them has Skolfnung stuck fast to the timbers of the boat in the 1880 Muriel Press translation. And then uh, Skolfnung had been fast in the ferry within her inner timbers in the 1903 Proctor translation. That's somewhat ambiguously and awkwardly phrased. Uh, What does Proctor mean by had been fast in the ferry? I don't know. Yeah, because I've read some of Proctor's translation. I have to say, I feel like he had a different understanding of the English language than we do, <laughs> or at least a different expectation of its kind of nuances yeah, than we do. I think that's it, right? Uh, he, he's one of those turn-of-the-century scholars that really kind of lean into the archaic potential of English as a Germanic language. Yeah. Hey, John, uh, something we do here. Uh, this is slightly off topic, but I do know two interesting facts about Robert Proctor that I'm ready with. If you are so inclined. Why? Why? Because I, I looked him up while preparing for this RuneSat question because I was looking up the translations yeah. and I saw he did one and I was like, who is this guy? What's he mm-hmm. doing? Yeah, we go down some odd paths down the rabbit holes, huh? Yes, we do. Okay, so fact, are you, you, you game? Yep, go for it. Okay, sorry, Dana. This is a digression within, <laughs> you know, uh, but fact one. Robert Proctor worked at the British Museum as a bibliographer with a special interest in typography. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, just aside, uh, I feel like you've got to come from a certain kind of family in the 19th century to specialize 
in something like typography right. and then do actually find a job that pays you to work on it. I agree, but I could not tell you anything about his family mm. or his mm. background. I've only got the two facts and I've all already shared the first one. All right. What's the second? Well, he dis- this is the one that actually is good. This is what I was leading to. He disappeared in 1903 at the age of 35. Disappeared? Yes. As in ran away, took on a new identity to escape a life of bibliographic crime? <laughs> mm. uh, or disappeared as in probably died, possibly because of a life of bibliographic and typographic crime? <laughs> uh, well, the former part of the latter is what uh-huh. I would say. He disappeared while hiking solo in the Alps, which you're not supposed to do. And uh-huh. his his body was never found, as far as I know, and he was eventually declared dead in absentia. I see. Okay, so we have no actual proof he didn't run away and create a new identity as, say, a parasailing instructor in the Caribbean. I mean, well, if we're being reasonable here, there is no body. Uh-huh. So I suppose he could have retired to the Caribbean and maybe taken up parasailing, though something tells me that parasailing instruction hmm, as a tourist hobby uh, wasn't really a thing in the early 1900s. I mean, <laughs> there probably wasn't parasailing in the early 1900s. <laughs> well, John, uh, interesting you should say that because it's a little known fact that parasailing was started by what has been described as a bookish English gentleman. In Jamaica around 1905, but what? can't possibly be the same guy, could it? Um, I mean, that would be pretty <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> also, I'm not sure I believe anything you've just said. Well, you're a smart man. You shouldn't. Yeah. The parasailing thing is obviously a fiction, but the rest about yeah. the, the stuff about Robert Proctor is true, which I think is, is quite interesting. But, uh, you know. All right. All right. Get back to Skolfnung now before this really goes off the rails. <laughs> right, right. So Skolfnung is fast in the ferry, uh, uh-huh. whatever that means. So the Icelandic for this line is Skolfnungur var fester with invidunna i ferjuni. And the phrase we're most interested in here is var fester with invidunna. Now, let's start with the last part of that phrase, the invider. Do you know right, about so that word, uh, invider, John? Yeah, it's a compound word. It is. Uh, in implies something interior or inward or innermost. Uh, it's not too different from English, right? In. Right. Uh, and vither uh, could have a lot of meanings. It, uh, it has quite a few meanings. <laughs> yeah, in, you're right. In this case, I'm going to assume it means timber or wood. Yes. Um, and I'm basing that on uh, a friend of ours from Erbijasaga. Thorir Woodleg. Uh-huh. Uh, Thorir Vithlegr. See, I, I'm impressed by your swift deduction, first of all, and your recall, as always. I mean, like you you got a reputation yeah. for just remembering stupid stuff. I, I appreciate you blowing smoke, but I assume you're going to edit out the lengthy pause while I was working that out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I will leave in this part as a record of our lies. Excellent. <laughs> You're right, though. Invider means inner timber. In uh-huh. in this case, I think it means the inner framework of the ship. And in fact, Cleesby Vigfusson suggests it means like the ribs of the ship or the the mm-hmm. inner parts of the ship. Um, and also, the invider uh, in modern Icelandic can also mean infrastructure, which I think is is quite interesting. Huh. Um, so it's also it's not just physical infrastructure, but right. uh, framework. Right. In English, we would use the word framework in the same way. 
Yes, yes. It can be both a physical and a metaphorical mm-hmm. concept, right? Um, so uh, more or less, uh, I'm pretty sure this is exactly what is meant in this saga because I searched through all of the family sagas and I found that this same word, invider, is used only two other times in all of the family sagas. Uh, once in Fljotsdala saga and once in Ljosvetninga saga. And in both cases, the implication is that it is the inner framework of the ship. Right. So not the mast itself. Right. But I think it's worth saying it doesn't really bust Dana's theory. It's quite mm-hmm. possible that Thorkettle was indeed using Skolfnung to cut the rigging or to cut the ropes that held the, this cargo, the, the timber that's kind of wobbling the ship from side to side, um, cut that free. And in that case, it would make sense that he swings this sword hard enough to stick it fast in the framework so that it is then stuck and it is carried to shore in the wreckage. Right. It's a good theory. It is. But then there is another part of the phrase. The varfester with inviduna. And I'm interested in the... uh, You are... Boy, you are digging deep here. Now, I'm only mentioning it because there's ambiguity and it's interesting ambiguity. So on the one hand, the Varfesterith, it could mean that, as suggested by various translations, that Skolfnung was fixed to the invir in the ferry from a hard chopping motion. Mm-hmm. And the translators seem to suggest that it is indeed wedged into the timbers of the ship, as if Thorkettle was hacking at the lines, as Dana suggests. But that's not really how the phrase Varfesterith works, at least not how I understand it. Yeah, but what do you know, really? Not much. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as is always clear when I'm doing these kinds of searches, uh, I'm not a native speaker or even a competent student of Icelandic. But uh, Join the club. <laughs> you can take anything that I say here with a big bag of salt. But my understanding of the phrase festervith is that it means something more like attached to or fixed to. So that could mean it's stuck into the wood from the effort to chop the lines. But I suspect, I think that this sword, it's still in its case and tied tightly to the framework of the ship, just as Thorkettle did and had it when he got onto the ship. Whoa, 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 wait. So does that mean that you're denying Dana's theory? Denying. This took a, this took a surprising turn. I'm not denying. I'm not denying it. I already said I think Dana's theory is quite plausible, but I also think that the language, when you look into the language, it suggests that the sword is simply tied tightly to the framework of the ship. And when the ship breaks up, the case and the sword that's inside stays where they are and float ashore. It's less exciting, but I, th- I think that's what happens. Well, if I can just say, I am shocked. I can't believe that you would attack one of our listeners like this. And divide our audience. No. I, for one, am Team Dana all the way. There's not... Skofnung is canonically embedded in the woodwork. I think. Maybe there are people out there who will be Team Andy, but honestly, I doubt it. John, Team Andy? There's no Team Andy. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Correct. No, no. You are deliberately stoking the flames of discord, and I won't have it. I like both oh. of these interpretations equally. I think Dana has a great point. Well, it's quite possible, but the language... No. That is rhetorically incoherent. 
get out of here. Two opposite interpretations cannot both be true. Uh, (laughs) But you did use the word discord, Andy. Yes, which is what you're fomenting. And say, that's one of the ways people can get in touch with us if they want uh, 45-minute deep dives into how a sword survives a shipwreck. A segue to the end. Well. Yep. (laughs) All right. It's not great, but Uh, I'll take it. I know. So uh, what are some other ways people can get in touch with us with their questions, comments, and concerns about this ridiculous thing we do? Well, uh, you can find us on Facebook where we are Saga Thing Podcast. And if you feel the need for occasional visuals, we're also on Instagram at Saga Thing Podcast. Until we find something better, you can also find us on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. I've been thinking about maybe popping onto threads, but I know. I don't know. It's all one evil entity after another, <laughs> and I don't know what to do, to be honest with you. Uh, but you could always reach out to us uh, through Gmail, where, you know, Google's not evil, right? They don't do anything bad. <laughs> no, they definitely don't data mine at all. No. But, you know, there we are at SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. I mean, what is this, John? Right. So, so use Gmail and then include uh, references to all the most horrifying moments in the sagas. <laughs> so you can get yourself on a government watch list or two. There you go. There you go. Uh, and again, the unofficial, official Saga Thing Discord is really where everything's happening. Uh, people are over there right now talking about everything from Olaf's bicep-bearing undershirts to... Scandinavian Halloween to my depressing obituary. <laughs> it's a great group of people on there sharing their various areas of knowledge and their interests. And it's frankly, it's quite fascinating. So come join us on there and share your interests and your knowledge and your expertise. And I think you should come join us. It's free and they don't data mine and they definitely don't. <laughs> oh no, nothing evil. There's nothing evil going on and in this. And if that works for you, uh, try sneaking up behind one of us on little cat feet and tapping Ooh. us on the shoulder. We almost certainly won't bury an axe in your head. Well, we're pretty sure we won't. I also want to welcome aboard our guest illustrator for this saga, William, who is uh, to be found on Instagram at willja underscore art dot thing. Spell, spell that? W-I-L-L-J-A-H underscore art dot thing. Oh, that's great. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining in, William. All right. Well, that's going to do it for now. We'll be back soon with the second part of Howard Saga. It's going to be a fun one. It starts with a bang next time. Uh-huh. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. I think that's I, he's doing the same thing. He's calling them out for being rude. I think that's that's absolutely right. But I think underneath that is a a this, what, underneath <laughs> underneath. Okay, I'm sorry. As you a, would you would I, crucify me I, if I tried to pull this off. I apologize for as a literary scholar <laughs> reading beneath the surface of a text. <laughs> you are right. You are right, John. I'm just going to accept what's on the surface, especially in a poem. Oh my god! Because the last thing I would want to do is is dig into a poem and read the subtext. (laughs) I stand corrected. Oh, you son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Anyway, yeah, stop arguing. You argue so much that we never get anything done. God. God. Sorry.
ridiculous. Oh my god. All right. You were like everyone's nightmare of a younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I try to please. <laughs>